want to welcome you to the beginning of what is really part two of our series called The Way of Jesus. If you have been uh, joining us either in person or online, uh, you're aware of the fact that earlier this year, actually back in January, we started part one of a series called The Way of Jesus, which uh, aimed at answering the question, who is Jesus? And that series culminated last Sunday, Easter Sunday, with uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which really is the singular event that has launched this movement that we now refer to as Christianity. We talked all about that last week, how that really is the centerpiece, and there's really good reasons for believing that it really did happen. Building off of that, we are beginning part two of our series today, where having uh, asked and answered the question, who's Jesus, this leg of the series is going to be focused on the question, what is Christianity? And we're going to let Jesus answer that question himself by looking at uh, a sermon that he gave called the Sermon on the Mount during his time here. There's uh, two places that it's recorded in the gospel accounts. There's a shorter version in Luke chapter 6, a longer version in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. So we're going to spend the next, I think it's nine or ten weeks, uh, looking at different parts of, of Jesus' teaching. Um, the reason that I wanted to spend a, a number of weeks answering this question is because one of the things that Christians and non-Christians have in common is we tend to have a lot of wrong ideas about what Christianity is. We talk about this on on the the first half of this series, that that there's this tendency in all of us to try to create Jesus in our our own image and decide for ourselves what he's like. And with that, there's also a tendency for a number of people to, in, in all of us actually, to bring our own agenda and our own preconceived notions and our own prejudices and biases and all of that into Christianity. And what we wind up doing is creating a lifestyle other than the one that Jesus invites people to follow him into called Christianity. And so if you're listening to this and you're already a follower of Jesus, this series is going to be a great tool for just helping you remember what exactly it is you have decided to spend your life uh, doing, this lifestyle that you have decided to dedicate your life to. But if you're here and, uh, and you're not quite sure that, that you are a Christian, uh, maybe you're even interested in becoming one, you're just not sure exactly what it means and what Christianity itself looks like, I cannot think of a better place in Scripture for you to spend time than the Sermon on the Mount. So starting today and for the next several weeks, we're going to let Jesus himself speak to this question of what exactly is this lifestyle that he invites us to follow him into that we refer to as Christianity. What exactly is that lifestyle all about? Today, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. I'll read verses 20 through 26, which are really just the introduction to Jesus' sermon. I'll read it on the front end. We'll get into it. It says, Then looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, You who are poor are blessed, because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are now hungry are blessed, because you will be filled. You who now weep are blessed, because you will laugh. You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, 
For this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. This is God's word. Uh, Just prior to this, Luke tells us that Jesus went up into this, he went up into the mountains, from what we can tell, it's probably the mountain range north of the Sea of Galilee. He went up into those mountains and he spent all night praying. Early the next morning, uh, Jesus actually, I don't know if you, you were aware of this, but Jesus before naming his 12 disciples, he had all kinds of followers that you know, were hoping maybe he would pick me and I'd get to spend time with them. But out of all of those, however big that group of people was, the morning after Jesus spent all night praying on that mountain, he selected the 12 that he would invest his life in. And coming down to this, um, this plain, Jesus delivered the words to a crowd of thousands and thousands of people, the words that I just read to you. Before we get into what Jesus is actually saying here, I just, if I can, I think it's helpful for us to try to get into Luke chapter 6 and really feel the anticipation that was building. Because up to this point, it's only Luke chapter 6, but by this time, Jesus was already famous to the point that he really could not go anywhere without villages and towns emptying and crowding around him. It's why he literally had to climb a mountain just to pray him and God one-on-one because of the things that he said and the things that he did. We talked about that in the series through, through um, the Gospel of Mark. But just prior to the Sermon on the Mount, we're told that Jesus, just prior to delivering that teaching, he selected his disciples. That's an incredibly significant thing because back then when a rabbi selected their team, and it's really the same today, when a leader in any setting selects their team, that's that leader's way of officially declaring the beginning of whatever it is that the leader came here to do. And so you, you, you can kind of picture this. Jesus is coming down from this mountain with his, basically his lieutenants to this, this flat place. He's got thousands of people on the edge of their seats with bated breath, They have these hopes and these ideas and these dreams and these aspirations of what Jesus is going to be like, and is he the one we've been waiting for? And they know that whatever comes out of Jesus' mouth, this is going to set the tone for what it is that that, that he's all about. And the very first thing, if you paid attention, you heard me read it, the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth, the very first thing that he talks about in the Sermon on the Mount is this new kingdom that Jesus refers to as the kingdom of God. This brings us to what will be our first idea, our main idea, and the only idea that that we put on the screens this morning. It might actually be fair to say this is the main idea of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Number one, it's very simply that Jesus came to build a new kingdom. Now, every kingdom uh, or administration in human history uh, has at, at, at least two aspects to it. It has a pattern and it has a product. You see this in, uh, in corporations when there's a new CEO that brings in a new leadership team or board. Maybe you've experienced that in your line of work, even a, you know, a new coach to a new sp- sporting program. Every new kingdom or administration brings with it at least two things. There's always a, a pattern and there's a product, meaning there is a, a, uh, a pattern of values that inform the day-to-day activities of the lives of the people in, in that kingdom. And then secondly, every kingdom has a product that it produces in the lives of the people in that kingdom. What Jesus is doing here in these opening words is he's simply comparing the kingdom he came to establish with the kingdom that he came to replace. So we're going to spend our time this morning basically comparing the two of them and then talking about how we can get into Jesus's kingdom. But before we do that, just one thing to consider uh, today and all through this series. According to Jesus, there are exactly two kingdoms. You are either a citizen of one or the other. 
in um, Colossians chapter 1, Paul writing to the Colossians, he describes a Christian as someone who has been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. Those are the only two options. And so the most important question that you can ask yourself today and really all through this series is very simply, which kingdom are you a citizen of? And with that, what you're going to see is that you can be a citizen of Jesus' kingdom while still being heavily influenced by the old kingdom. So like I said, we're going to kind of... We're going to do what Jesus does. We're going to compare and contrast the kingdom that Jesus came to do away with to the kingdom that he came to build. First off, we'll start with the old one. Jesus describes it for us in Luke chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. Uh, this kingdom's going to sound real familiar to you. <clears throat> Jesus said, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the false prophets. What Jesus is explaining here, I said every kingdom has a pattern and a product. What Jesus is describing here is the pattern of values at the top of the old kingdom. These are all the things that the old kingdom holds dear. Four things, Jesus said. I'll just walk through them real quick. The first thing Jesus spoke of is riches. Uh, riches, of course, historically, not only in Jesus' day, but in every society and, and even our society, they're always accompanied by one thing. That's power, influence, control, the ability to manipulate the world as you see fit. The more riches you have, the more power you have. So first at the top of this kingdom is riches and the power that comes with them. Then Jesus talked about being full. That's another way to describe the state of person who has uh, no real material need. So in other words, that's comfort. Thirdly, Jesus talks about laughing. He's not talking about happy, joyful laughter here. I'm not sure why it gets translated like that. The word that Jesus uses here uh, has the connotation of arrogance. It's the kind of laughing that someone uh, practices when they have beaten someone at something and they feel superior to and therefore look down on that individual. It's not laughing in general. It's laughing at someone, and it's usually the byproduct of a great deal of success. So that's success. And then, and then lastly here, Jesus talks about being spoken well of. That one's fairly obvious. It's just fame and recognition. So at the top of this old kingdom, Jesus says you have power, comfort, success, and recognition. This is the kingdom of the world, <clears throat> and, and uh, you'll understand why. Many people have referred to this kingdom as the right-side-up kingdom. The reason people have called it that is because uh, living according to this, this pattern of values is something that, that people have never really needed to be taught. One of the, it's amazing. Despite all the differences and variances in, in you know, human civilization throughout the years in different societies, one thing that every... This is a pretty amazing thing if you think about it, especially if you're not willing to entertain the idea that Jesus is God. It's amazing that an uneducated Jewish rabbi 2,000 years ago was able to nail down all of human history with his breakout opening sermon. Right? You can survey every human civilization in society and you will find no one has ever needed to teach people that we should, we should prefer being powerful over being powerless. We should prefer being comfortable over making sacrifices that make us uncomfortable. We should, we should prefer uh, being recognized rather than being excluded. It's one of the only things that literally every civilization have had in common is the people of those civilizations are all desiring those things, okay? So if that's the value pattern, I said it, every kingdom has a pattern and a product. If that's the pattern of values, the question is, what's the product of this kingdom? And this is where Jesus' teaching gets... Um, very interesting to me because it gets almost psychological. What Jesus is saying here, when you pay careful attention to the words that he uses, 
Jesus is saying the product that this kingdom creates, the old kingdom, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness, the right side up kingdom, however you want to phrase that, the product this kingdom creates is people who are empty. People who are empty. Look, look at how Jesus phrases this. He says, people who live in this kingdom, you might be rich now, but Jesus says, ultimately, you will have no comfort. You will be emptied of comfort. He says, you might get filled now, ultimately, you will be hungry. He says, you might laugh now, but ultimately, you will weep. And I want to be crystal clear about what Jesus is saying here and what he's not saying. Because you could take Jesus' words out of context and, and at face value, it would look like Jesus is saying that if you ever have anything that the world says is nice, if you ever have any kind of influence, if you ever have people speaking well of you, if you, ever, if you have any material possessions, any kind of comfort in this life, then basically that's cause for alarm because your life's getting ready to implode. That's not what Jesus means, and we know that because of what he says in verse 24. You notice in, in, in verse 24, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich. What people would have expected him to say is, For you will be poor. That's not what he says. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Uh, the, the, the Greek word there is paraklesis. It's a word that, ref, that describes, it refers to deep consolation or, or deep solace. And interestingly enough, it's, it's a word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit. So here's the point. Jesus is not saying that if you are successful or if you have influence or, or any of that, that you're, you know, you're not a citizen of his kingdom because obviously the last 2,000 years is full of examples of, of men and women of God who fully laid their lives down for the sake of Jesus and experienced a great deal of success and influence and, uh, and even favor in the world. But what Jesus' words mean here is that when those things become your comfort, when those things become what you look to to help you get through life, the things, when, when they become what you're orienting your life around, what you're functionally living for, what Jesus' words mean is you, you might call yourself a Christian. You might believe in God. You might go to church. You might practice the disciplines. You might know a lot of things about God. But if, you, if the things that you're living for are power and comfort and success and recognition, then according to Jesus' words, regardless of what you and I want to think about ourselves, we are citizens of the kingdom of the world. And when Jesus says, woe to you, that's not, Jesus isn't threatening. He's not, you know, getting ready to call down fire from heaven. It's not a threat. That word woe is a statement of compassion and regret. Because what Jesus is saying, essentially, he's saying, I feel sorry for you if that's how you've chosen to go through life, because what you will discover in the end is that you will be, not only will you not find the things that you're looking for, but you will end up entirely and cosmically empty. Now, what Jesus' Jesus's words here, you know, the, the implied statement, don't do that, right? Like he said, this is the bad kingdom, obviously, the one that you don't want to live your life according to. And certainly, in a sense, Jesus' words here are a challenge to people from every culture throughout time and space because, like, like we said, everyone naturally desires these kinds of things. I, I just want to offer something to you. I actually think it's fair to say that, that despite the fact that these words are challenging to everyone, I think they are, if anything, in a greater... I think they are more challenging to people in our culture today than they would have been even a couple of generations ago. And the reason I say that and I just offer you this as, as, as um, kind of like a thought experiment. The reason that I'd say that is because you and I right now are living in, this is just an important thing to recognize, we are living in the first secular society in human history. I don't know if you've ever 
heard that or been, been told that before. But one of the things that Christianity has had in common with every other religion, belief system, way of life, philosophy, you name it, is this idea that there are, there are two worlds. There's this life and there's the life to come. Uh, every, every society has, has really understood prior to the modern secular West, every society's kind of been built on this idea that this life that we're in right now is a life of brokenness and disappointment and dissatisfaction, but the next life is the one of beauty and fulfillment and happiness. And, uh, they, of course, they've all disagreed about what exactly that next life is like and what you have to do to get there, but they all knew that there was something after this. And so with that, every, really, you can look back, prior to secularism, every society in history uh, was built on this idea that the purpose of this life for people is to live your life according to the values of the next life. It, it's to be brave, it's to be wise, it's to be strong, it's to be courageous, it's to be self-sacrificing, whatever it is, to live this life according to the values of the next life. Secularism has come along and and it's, it's taught something that's never really been taught before, which is that this life is all there is. I'm not saying that no one's ever believed that before secularism. I'm saying there's never been a society that's, that's been built on that idea. But that's what we both are and are becoming. Secularism is based on this idea that this life is all there is. And so secularism both has created and is creating a society, the first society in human history that's built on the idea that there's just one world and not two. You say, well, who cares? What does that mean? Well, you just think about the implications of that. What that means is that according to secularism, the only chance you stand at being happy or satisfied or fulfilled is in this life, because after this, that's it. You're just fertilizer. You're done. You cosmically stop existing. So you, it's actually your responsibility to, to make this life all about you and pursue your dreams and put yourself first and assert yourself. And so what that's done is it's created a society of people who believe something that no society has ever believed before, literally in the history of mankind. What we are living in right now is a society of people who believe the meaning of life is to be happy. No one's ever believed that before now. You look around and you see that everywhere you are. And, and, and one of the most immediate and obvious results of that, I would offer to you, what that's created is the most unhappy group of people on the planet. You can look at, at both religious and secular surveys and polls. I'm talking places like Forbes magazine. Do you know by every, by every data point we can measure, we as a society are quantifiably less happy, less satisfied, more anxious, more depressed than our ancestors. And what's happening in our increasingly secular society, here's what it is. We're simply experiencing the truth of a teaching that a poor Jewish rabbi conceived out of wedlock to a poor teenager named Mary, a teaching that he gave 2,000 years ago. All we're doing now, it, we are still discovering the truth of what this rabbi was trying to get us to understand about life. So that's the kingdom that Jesus is, has come to do away with. Next, let's look at the kingdom that he came to build. <clears throat> I'm, in, I'm in verses uh, 20 through 23. It says, Then looking up at his disciples, Jesus said, you who are poor are blessed, because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are now hungry are blessed, because you will be filled. You who now weep are blessed, because you will laugh. You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note 
Your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way their ancestors used to treat the prophets. So you look at Jesus' kingdom, and at the top of his kingdom are values that are completely incompatible with the values of the old kingdom. What you have here is instead of power, there's weakness. That's what poverty equated to then and now. Instead of comfort, you have sacrifice. Instead of success, you have grief. Instead of recognition, you have exclusion. This is Jesus' kingdom, and you can understand why this has often been referred to as the upside-down kingdom. A commentator named Michael Wilcock, reflecting on these words, had this to say. This is such an important observation. He said, in the life of God's people, it will be seen first of all. Let me just stop there. If you claim to be one of God's people... According to Jesus' words, this should be true of you. He says, in the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. Now, his point there, and this is completely taken from what Jesus is saying, is that the, the mark of what, of, of what is of real Christianity the concrete proof that you are a follower of Jesus. First and foremost, it has nothing to do with anything you do or don't do. It has everything to do with what you value. That is the incontrovertible evidence that you have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Christians prize what the rest of the world is, is, is doing everything they can to get away from. Followers of Jesus, we're being told here, prize weakness, sacrifice, grief, and exclusion. And because I don't want to misrepresent Jesus, let me be clear, this does not mean we pursue those things as an end in and of themselves. What it does mean is that this is what Christians understand. This is what they understood in the first century and for the last 2,000 years. What this is getting across, Christians are people who understand that when God leads us through these kinds of things, through situations that bring us to terms with our weakness and cause us grief and, and, and require sacrifice of us and cause us to feel excluded, Followers of Jesus are people who understand when God walks us through that, that, that we're not to be undone by those situations and we're not to simply bear up under them. Christians are people who see the value in them. We know that there are certain things that God can do in and through us that would never otherwise be possible unless he brought us through those places of great pain. That's what followers of Jesus, that's what he's getting across. This is, is Jesus' kingdom. This is his pattern of values, and it's why you can understand why it's called the upside-down kingdom. Now, admittedly, if we left it there, and that's all Jesus said, I don't think he would have had a lot of volunteers for the kingdom of God in his day or in any nation, tribe, and tongue. But when you look at how Jesus completes this thought, when you look at what Jesus says his kingdom produces, suddenly this becomes really attractive. Because if the product of the old kingdom is we said it's people who are empty, then what Jesus is saying here is the product that his kingdom creates and only his kingdom can create, <clears throat> his kingdom creates people who are free. So I want you to think about the kind of person that Jesus is describing here. All through this, Jesus says the ones who are now poor, the ones who are now hungry, the ones who are now weeping, those people not will be, but they currently are blessed. They are blessed where they stand. Present tense. So you think about the type of person Jesus is describing here. He's talking about someone who is weeping. So this is, not, this is not let's deny reality and substitute our own in his place. Jesus is talking about somebody who is experiencing a great deal of pain for whatever reason. 
Maybe they were handed something they didn't want to hold on to, or they had to let go of something they weren't ready to let go of. Either way, this is a person experiencing profound pain, and yet they're blessed at the same time. That word blessed means to be deeply happy and satisfied in the core of your being. So again, consider the ideal that Jesus is holding up here. Jesus is saying people in his kingdom can do something that people in the old kingdom will never have the ability to do. They can weep and they can be deeply satisfied and happy underneath all of their weeping at the same time. And this is the irony. People who live according to the old kingdom, pursuing the values at the top of that kingdom, they live with this this, this belief that they're free, what the irony is they are completely enslaved. They are literally slaves to their circumstances. They have no ability to rejoice unless they get everything that they want and their life goes exactly as they plan. The problem with that is it, life doesn't work that way, not on this side of eternity at least. And, and while thinking that they're pursuing things that they want, they're actually slaves to all of these things that have hold on their heart. What Jesus is saying is in my kingdom, and only in my kingdom can you be free from that. Can you be free from being determined and defined by your circumstances? How that's possible, Jesus describes in verse 23. What Jesus says there is when your life is falling apart from the outside, Jesus, com- he says not only he, he commands you because you can rejoice in that very day because, Jesus said, your reward is great in heaven. Jesus is not saying, I'm sorry for how bad your life is, but you can rejoice when you get to heaven and get the reward. He's saying that you can rejoice in the day of your exclusion, in the day when you're insulted, in the day when you're slandered, in the day when you experience profound loss, because great is, not will be your reward. The point is, Jesus is saying people in his kingdom that follow in his footsteps will move through life with this understanding that they have access to something that nothing in this life can threaten or take away. And when that idea really begins to bore into and transform a human heart, what it creates, and this is what Christians were kind of known for early on, it creates a group of people, a community of people, that not only the rest of the world can't figure out, but it creates a group of people who in a certain sense look reckless in the eyes of the world because they're willing to let go of everything that the rest of the world is dying to get their hands on. And when God leads this group of people through experiences that cause them great pain, they have the ability to rejoice and to leap for joy because we know that in those times and through those times, the kingdom of God is nearer than ever. I love the way Tim Keller phrased this. He said, there's a blessing in you. And, 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 and I say this, I don't, I don't know that everybody's going to get this, but I know that, that those of us that God has brought you through profound suffering, this will hit home. He said, there's a blessing in you that gets stronger when you weep, that gets stronger when you hunger, that gets stronger when you're weak. There's a certain welcome and honor that comes from God that you never really tap into until you lose the world's recognition. Therefore, we prize those things everyone in the world would absolutely avoid at all costs. It doesn't mean we want them or seek them, but when they come, they make us wiser instead of despondent, kinder instead of bitter. They make us more blessed. I say all that to say, that's what Christianity is. Now, that might not be what a lot of people who claim to be Christians are known for today, But, and this is the essence of this whole series, according to the author and founder of Christianity, that's what this way of life was always supposed to be about. That's what it can be about. 
And when you, when you really get into the ideal that Jesus is holding up, not only for individuals, but for a community, I, I think it's fair to say everyone in existence wants this. What Jesus is talking about is, is you becoming the kind of person, not only are you free from being dominated by your circumstances, but, but it, Jesus is saying he's talking about the kind of person, even if you experience the worst things this life can throw at you, the only thing those, those, those situations have the power to do in your life is make you better. I'll just point out, People pay good money to a therapist hoping to become that kind of person week after week after month after year. And I'll tell you, over the last 10 years as a pastor, one thing that everybody I've met with in an ongoing kind of you know, one-on-one setting, one thing they all have in common is that they're all trying to get over the fact and deal with the fact that to a large degree, they are defined. They are a product of something that happened to them and they don't want to be anymore. Jesus is saying, I can free you from that. I can make you this kind of bomb-proof individual that, that the fires of life will only refine you. The question is, okay, well, how, how do we become that kind of person? How do we get into this kingdom? And the answer, most immediately and most obviously, is you give your life to the king of this kingdom, Jesus. Now, I want to pause here and say something that might sound strange. This is at least... I don't know exactly how many times, but this is at least the third time that I've taught on this passage in, in 10 years of ministry. And, and so when I was putting this teaching together, I went back over the, the, the two teachings that I gave on this passage before. And, um, and I, I'm not, this is not a joke. I hated them. It is nauseating for me to look at or read or listen to my old stuff because, because the way that I ended the teaching was, you know, I walked through, I compared the old kingdom, the new kingdom, don't we want to be people in the new kingdom, give your life to Jesus, and then, you know, see you next week. And when I was putting this teaching together, you know, thinking through what, what questions do I bring to the text, what questions would I have if I was listening to this teaching, it dawned on me, this might sound strange, but let me tease it out, how insufficient of an answer that is. How insufficient it is to say, man, look at the idea that Jesus can make you give your life to him, all right, see you in seven days. I'm not saying Jesus is not enough. I'm saying that's an insufficient answer. Here's why I say that, because I've given my life to Jesus. This might shock you. I'm a Christian, everyone. Uh, That means legally, in the eyes of God, for all intents and purposes, I am a citizen of this kingdom. I am in this kingdom. The problem is there's not nearly enough of this kingdom in me. Just thinking about this week. Considering the, the kind of person that Jesus says he can make you here, you, you can't help but reflect on the kind of person you actually are. You know, and thinking about all the stupid things that, that generate anger or bitterness or resentment in me because there's still way too much of me in me. And that's the tension that we experience no matter how long we've been walking with Jesus. That the, the, the bulk of the tension, the bulk of the turmoil, the bulk of the problems that we face in this life, what it all boils down to if we're honest enough to face ourselves, it's that all of these other things that Jesus died to free us from, they still have their tentacles wrapped around our heart. And so the question then becomes, okay, well, how do you actually grow into what Jesus is talking about here? How can you experience more of this freedom that Jesus has died to make available to people? And, and, and in some ways, this whole sermon series is designed to answer that question. But as we close today, I want to give you two concrete answers to that question. What I'm specifically targeting, I want to answer the question, how can a human being change? That might, to me, that might be the greatest question hanging over humanity itself. I'm going to give you two answers to that question. 
these answers are not only the way that you get into this kingdom Jesus talks about, but these are, are, are the ways that this kingdom continually, in a growing, progressive way, gets into us. They are, I'll give them to you on the front end, we'll walk through them and we'll be done. First off, there needs to be, I'll make this personal, a radical facing of yourself. Secondly, there needs to be a radical handing over of yourself. And I promise you, as we walk through them, you will not like either of those answers. First off, when I say a radical facing of, of, of yourself, if you and I are going to be changed by what Jesus is saying here, then we need to understand what the primary purpose of specifically the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, so we're looking at today, we need to understand the purpose of what Jesus is saying here. You, you notice, all Jesus does in the opening of this message, he just compares and contrasts two kingdoms. He does not tell you what he's going to do, and he doesn't even tell you what to do. So in comparing these two kingdoms, Jesus is not, he's not inviting you to add a lot of routine and behavior and activity to your life because let's call it what it is, that would be really easy. What Jesus is doing in these opening words is inviting you to do something far more difficult than that, which is to sit still long enough to, to reflect, to introspect, and to get honest about what's actually going on in your heart. And that might sound simplistic. That might sound like a cliche. You've got to face yourself. I, I just, would you please today and all through this series, would you at least entertain the idea that maybe you think you've done that when in reality you haven't? I don't know if you've ever heard the name uh, Carl Jung. He is a Swiss psychiatrist. He's also the founder of analytic psychology. He's heavily influential even today. I came across a quote of his years ago. He said, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, in order to avoid facing their own soul. I say that to say the first purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to get you to do that, the thing that we most want to avoid. The, the, the primary question here Jesus wants us to ask ourselves is, is, um, is not if, but to what degree you have been formed by the kingdom that Jesus said he came to replace. Because regardless of what we want to think, none of us are free thinkers. We are formed to a greater degree than any of us want to admit by the kingdom of this world. I'm reading a book right now called Invitation to a Journey. It's written by Robert Mulholland. You're probably going to hear a few quotes from that through this series. Highly recommend the book. It's all about how to change. And here's what Mulholland said about this idea that we're all being formed. We've all been formed. He says, everyone is in process of spiritual formation. Every thought we hold, every decision we make, every action we take, every emotion we allow to shape our behavior, every response we make to the world around us, every relationship we enter into, every reaction we have toward the things that surround us and impinge upon our lives, all of these things, little by little, are shaping us into some kind of being. We are being shaped into either the wholeness of the image of Christ or a horribly destructive caricature of that image, destructive not only to ourselves but also to others, for we inflict our brokenness upon them. I don't know anybody who likes hearing that. However, what he's saying is completely in line with Jesus' two-kingdom paradigm. So before we do anything else, the first thing Jesus' words are calling us to do here is to simply ask ourselves, to what degree and in what ways have I been molded by this kingdom that Jesus would free me from? In other words, and if, if you want a homework assignment that I guarantee is going to make you feel terrible about yourself, I invite you to ask yourself the following kinds of questions. The first is, 
How have I been molded by my desire for power, comfort, success, and recognition? And if you think you haven't really been molded by them, then ask yourself, how do you respond when those things are threatened or taken away from you? I don't think there's any greater revelation of of our character than that. Just ask yourself, how do you do when you don't feel in control anymore? How do you do when you have to set aside your own comfort? How do you do when you don't feel recognized? How do you respond to that? That, more than anything else, will reveal how deep those things go. And, and with that, Jesus, is, is, is his, his sermon is calling us to ask ourselves, why do we think we need those things so badly? You know, if, if they've never satisfied us before, because I'm guessing every one of us has gotten our hands on a degree of those things. The question is, if we've gotten them before and they haven't satisfied us, then why do we think that more of what's never satisfied us would satisfy us, because I think that might be the definition of insanity. And, and with that, how has our desire for those things caused breakdown, not only in our personal lives, but in our relationships with other people? Those are the kinds of questions that Jesus' opening words would have us really reflect on. If, if, we, if we ask ourselves those questions and follow the answers wherever they go, then real change can begin. And the reason I say that is because if we, if we follow those threads, there's not a single person listening to this that will not discover that they are dominated to a far greater degree than they want to admit by the kingdom that Jesus says he came to replace. So first and foremost, there needs to be a radical facing of ourselves. But secondly, and this will be the last idea I offer you today, there also needs to be a radical handing over of ourselves, <clears throat> right? If, um, if you and I, specifically throughout the, the next however many weeks we're in this series, if you and I, as we study the Sermon on the Mount, will allow the Sermon on the Mount to study us, God will bring things to our lives that we don't like about ourselves. And if, I'll just tell you, if you are anything like me, then the first and most natural inclination of your heart is to try to do something about what you see, to try to fix it. And speaking from personal experience, that is the worst possible response to the issues that arise. Because, and, and, and in so, so many ways, this is also the point of the Sermon on the Mount, that's not how humans change. Now, to explain what I mean, we're almost done here, just please lean in. The, uh, consider the metaphor Jesus uses here. This is, I, I was literally just racking my brain trying to figure out how did I want to end this teaching in a way that was truthful and helpful to people. And as I was walking out of the office on Thursday to get my kids, it dawned on me. Like I, I had this kind of light bulb moment and I texted it to myself in my notes app. Maybe this is just for me, but maybe this is for somebody else. Would you just consider the metaphor that Jesus uses here? He's talking about Christianity when he's talking about the kingdom of God, but he calls it a kingdom. He doesn't just call it a, a belief system or a way of life or a, or a worldview. He calls it a kingdom, which makes Jesus, therefore, a king, which makes you and I, therefore, at the very least, not the king. So, so think, think about this. Jesus, I, this has never occurred to me before. Maybe you got this years ago. Congratulations, you're smarter than your pastor, but maybe this is for somebody else. Jesus, in referring to Christianity as a kingdom, and himself as a king, the king, is trying to get us to understand that our biggest problem is not that we're not doing enough. It's that in everything we do, here it is, we are still trying to maintain control of our own lives. This is one of the only things that both liberals and conservatives have in common. 
both relativists and moralists have in common, both the religious and the irreligious, both secular people and traditional people. One thing that unites humanity that we all have in common ever since that fateful moment in Genesis chapter 3 is we with, with white-knuckle grip are trying to maintain control of our own lives, driven by this idea that our lives are safest in our hands. We know what's best. We're most qualified to be our rulers, our kings, and our queens of our own kingdoms. And until that idea is seen for what it is and, and, and dealt with and done away with, there will be no lasting change. There will be no lasting freedom in our lives. Again, I love the way Mulholland put this. He said, in the final analysis, there is nothing we can do to transform ourselves into persons who love and serve as Jesus did. This is it. This is the only thing you can do to transform yourself. I'm, I'm going to read this again while I do. Worship team, would you come on up? We're almost done. It says, in the final analysis, there's nothing we can do to transform ourselves into persons who love and serve as Jesus did except to make ourselves available for God to do that work of transforming grace in our lives. Being formed rather than forming ourselves goes totally, radically against the ingrained objectification perspective of our culture. Graspers powerfully resist being grasped by God. Manipulators strongly reject being shaped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. Spiritual formation is the great reversal. From being the subject who controls all other things to being a person who is shaped by the presence, purpose, and power of God in all things. The first work of transformation is the reversal of these deeply ingrained and powerfully controlling dynamics of our cultural shaping. What Mulholland is talking about there is this deliberate, radical handing over of our lives to Jesus. What that means, Christianity, first and foremost, is not about us conquering the evil out there, and it's not even about us conquering the evil in here. It's about us developing a posture of heart that recognizes that I need to be conquered by the rightful king, Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that we don't do anything in this process. Of course, we practice spiritual disciplines both privately and, and corporately. Mulholland's book is about that. More importantly, Jesus' sermon is about that. And if you do tune in for this series, you'll see Jesus has a whole litany of things that he calls his followers to do. But in and through and underneath everything we do in the footsteps of Jesus, there must be this posture of heart that recognizes we are completely dependent on King Jesus, not only to bring us into his kingdom, but to continually bring his kingdom into us. How do we know we can trust a king like that to lay our lives in his hands? Easiest question of all, and I'll close with this. This is the one king that was willing to trade places with his subjects, the one master that was willing to die for the freedom of his slaves. Jesus entered into our kingdom took our darkness, our poverty, our grief, our exclusion, everything that we deserved so that we by grace through faith in his name could enter into his kingdom and find what our hearts have always longed for but will never be able to find in this life to the degree that we see that and as we grow in an understanding of that, we'll grow in a desire to hand more and more of ourselves over to this king. That and nothing less, that is the formula for deep, lasting ongoing supernatural change. That is the way of Jesus. <clears throat>
That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you first and foremost that change is possible, that we do not have to be who we've been, that we do not have to go through life enslaved to all these cruel masters that never give what they promise and never forgive us when we fail, that that there can be holistic transformation even on this side of eternity, that even though we'll never be perfect until you you, you finish the work that you start in us, that we, we don't have to be what we've been, that change is possible. As a community, God, I'd ask that specifically as we study the Sermon on the Mount and allow it to study us, that we would be willing to face ourselves to see things about ourselves, to admit things about ourselves, confess things to the people that we trust about ourselves that we would rather not. And in doing that, we would, we would hand our lives over to you, the rightful king, in ways that we never have before so that we could see change, so that relationships and individuals and, and marriages and, and families would be restored, they would be renewed, they would be resurrected by grace through faith. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. And all God's people said, Amen.